This is Stick to Sports Podcast with Noah and Logan. All right, we're here with Bleacher Report's Dan Pavali, covers the NBA for Bleacher Report, amongst other things. What's up, Dan? How you doing, Noah? Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in the NBA in terms of news. Um, a big thing going on about the proposed December 22nd date. We have off-season changes of trade rumors. So we're just going to get into that. But firstly, it's been after a crazy NBA season that lasted almost a calendar year. What do you think is the biggest thing we're taking from the NBA bubble after the end of it? I hope it's some of the camera angles, and I think it will be, but I think the biggest, actual, most impactful thing we take away will be the play-in tournament. Uh, That seems like it's going to be critical to what they're doing. I'm interested to see how they end up sort of working it, because I think in most seasons, like, you know, giving the 10 seed necessarily a chance to get in at the expense of what could be the seven seed, maybe wouldn't fly so much. I think it worked out perfectly for them this year with the way it was set up for that race for eighth place in the the Western conference. And maybe if you follow sort of a, a similar track where you need teams to be within four games of each other, that's definitely the way to go. And one thing I think you definitely keep of that play in tournament is I like the idea of the incumbent eight seed having to, to be beaten twice. If you want to knock them out of, of the playoffs, just to give, the regular season still meaning. And it just comes back to the fact that particularly in the West is like, if there is a, you know, a three and a half game or three game gap between eighth and ninth place, and then ninth place is still just able to beat um, eight in, in the course of one game and make the playoffs. I could see why that would sort of dilute the meaning of the regular season a little bit. And so I think there will be a a little bit of adjustments, but I kind of am intrigued to see how it, how much it'll mean, how interested teams will be, what it actually does to the playoff race when we look at it, when we know it's coming over the course of an entire season, because this one was sort of obviously because of the coronavirus pandemic just thrown at us in the moment. And to know that it's coming, I'm, I just think that it could have an impact on the way teams treat that latter half, latter third of the schedule where we see them start to suck a lot, a lot of them on purpose. And hopefully that addresses that at least a little bit. Uh, to jump in on that, uh, when you look, Look at like teams like the Phoenix Suns. They were, I believe, the 14th seed going into the bubble. And they had a pretty high chance to end up making the playoffs, even though they hadn't really played well the entire, the first half of the season. But that playing game could have potentially given them an opportunity to make the playoffs, even though coming into the bubble, they had the least odds to make it there. So I agree. The playing game would be an interesting thing to implement into the NBA season. I mean, I'm more of like an NBA conspiracy, so like... Oh, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm saying, like, obviously the whole thing I think was orchestrated to have Zion get the eighth seed, um, but if if Damian Lillard and the Portland Trailblazers didn't go on that unbelievable tear that they did, that most likely would have happened. Nobody anticipated the Suns going 8-0, I feel. I, going into the tournament, I literally said that they're just there to get a participant trophy and leave. Did not anticipate them get, going undefeated. Memphis had a good run. Portland had that crazy run. So, yeah, the play-in tournament is something that definitely you would hope to see um, implemented in um, future, even outside of the NBA bubble, especially in the West, where the eighth seed is usually highly contested in the West. We've seen teams, a 45-37 and 37 team, a.k.a. the Oklahoma City Thunder a couple of years ago, did, wouldn't make the playoffs. In the East, they'd be the fifth seed. But in the West, they wouldn't make the playoffs. So, yeah, especially in the West, 
it would be amazing to have like that type of playing bubble. But going into this offseason, come from the bubble, what player or team do you think really proved themselves in the NBA bubble? This is a tough one. I'm reticent to say this because I don't think that I trust the organization at large, but as someone who's been incredibly high on Devin Booker for probably the past three years, the Suns have something there. And I'm interested to see what they do to augment it because you don't want to see them necessarily double down too hard because yeah, eight no in the bubble is fun, but they played some teams that were missing great players. And when you just look at the Western conference right now, this will invariably change, but every single team at this moment could talk themselves into making a postseason push. And so that's going to remain at least comparably difficult leading into next year. Still, they seem to have found something with Cam Johnson in the starting lineup at the four. DeAndre Ayton has made a ton of improvement on defense from his, his rookie year. And he's really, we're probably not talking about it because Booker played so well for them, but if he has a consistent jumper and he's willing to take them, but we'd like to see him shoot threes as well. But if he can hit, those looks, he becomes, he's in that elite big man discussion for me then. And so to have a player on the precipice of that is incredible. I am forever a driver of the Mikael Bridges bandwagon. He is just absolutely fantastic. And so with Ricky Rubio, you have that nice sort of five player base. Can you go out there now and find someone who helps you lead units when Devin Booker's off the court slash provide some shot creation relief when he's on it? You can look at lower end options like an Alec Burks, um, I'm a big fan of if, you know, I don't think Kelly Oubre Jr. means as much to this team anymore. Uh, if you have Dario Sarge coming off the bench, he's a better shot creator than Kelly Oubre Jr. is going to be. Obviously not a better defender, but Oubre's defense has always been one of those things where it's like he's better in theory than when you actually watch him. I would be a proponent of them taking Kelly Oubre Jr., the number 10 pick, and just seeing what that fetches on the market. I don't know if it gets you a shot creator. If you're willing to include Ricky Rubio in there, does that get you, you know, does Rubio and Uber get you Chris Paul? They've been named as like that dark horse, Chris Paul destination. That's the type of move that I'm okay with them making. You don't want to see them go all in on the wrong player though. And, and one of the, the guys who I think is a no brainer fit for them doesn't really address the shot creation issue, but a Jeremy Grant would be a good example. I think he's great for the roster, but if it takes, you know, you renouncing, Aaron Baines and Sarich getting rid of Kamitsky, maybe clearing another salary to offer him 15 to $17 million a year. I just don't know that that makes sense for your team. And so it's, a, it, they're in this weird space of they have to juggle reality with how promising it seems like they are. And I think they'll have an easier time of doing that on the trade market, just where you're not getting someone who's under contract for four or five years. And they're just a team that I'm watching leading into next year, because you have to assume at least one of the teams from this season will phase out of that, uh, those eight spots in the Western conference. And I think everyone's just going to guess it's Oklahoma city based off what's been happening there. Now all of a sudden you're looking at, you know, Memphis, Phoenix, San Antonio, Sacramento, New Orleans, Minnesota, golden state, which one of those teams is going to get it. I think the pick is golden state. So then where is that extra spot coming from? Can Phoenix beat out any one of those other teams? And so they're just a fascinating squad to watch. I think both in the short term and the long term right now. I mean, I agree with that because like for me, I've always been highly critical of DeAndre Ayton, mostly because he had a great rookie season, but in terms of creating his own shot, he was not doing that a lot in his rookie season and even much into his sophomore year. He was great in the bubble, and the Suns really have something there. Monty Williams is a great coach. Devin Booker has become more of a passer, and that's a good thing. If he's creating his own shot, we already know how good he is offensively. If he's creating shots for others now, it opens up the offense to an even better um, degree than it was before. And obviously Ricky Rubio, Ricky Rubio is still there. I still think Ricky Rubio makes them a better team, but if you could trade him for someone better, um, that's also a great thing. 
for me personally, Portland, I think made the biggest, I think I didn't trust Portland going into the bubble only because depth was a huge thing for me for this team. Lost Rodney Hood to an injury earlier in the season. We said, and we saw what happened in previous playoffs. When Dame and CJ are getting are getting most of the defensive attention, that team completely goes, they go to garbage. So Hassan Whiteside, Hassan Whiteside proved that he could actually be on the court for a viable amount of time without having the offensive rating go straight down. Carmelo Anthony, we don't know if he's going to come back to this team, if they're going to bring him back. Either way, he proved he proved that he could take those big shots in those big moments. And Gary Trent Jr., who I think is one of the biggest surprises of the NBA bubble, proved that he could be an amazing role player and get the Trailblazers some shots. If Yusuf Nurkic is healthy, Dame keeps playing at this level, CJ is still an option. This team is still a good team. Um, a lot of people, even after a Western Conference Finals appearance for them, still doubted this team. Yes, in the season, they were trash. Defensively, they were one of the worst teams, I think 25th ranked in terms of defensive efficiency, but they still had a top 10 offense. So most of their games are coming down to the wire. If Dame's taking that shot, I'm, I'm still with it. Dame is one of the best fourth quarter scorers in the league, if not the best fourth quarter scorer. So Portland, I think, proved that they can still hang with the top teams. Nobody expected them to do much. I, I equated their win over Los Angeles to the Philadelphia 76ers win over the Lakers in the 2001 finals. That's, that was my, um, my comparison, but I still think Portland proves that Yusuf Nurkic, who was extremely dominant um, in the bubble games when he wasn't playing 40 minutes a game, of course, I still think trailblazers have proved a lot and they probably can come out of this better than they went in. If everybody's healthy next year and if they can make a couple moves um, in the off season, we don't know what's going to happen with Hassan Whiteside's contract. Don't know if they're going to bring back Melo, but if they can make a couple moves to get this team better, then I think next year they can really be one of the real dark horse contenders in the West, not just like the third seed that was an underdog in almost every single series they played last year. That's actually, I like really agree with you there. The only one pushback I'd give would be the Hassan Whiteside stuff. It's just like, I, I can't watch that dude play basketball anymore. Like I, I think he really lowers the ceiling of your team. But what I think that you brought up was key is so Nurkic, might be as good as he was before, but just because you have those compound leg fractures, um, I know Paul George went through something similar and he got back to his previous level, but I feel like with a big man, it's different. If you can have that reliable backup five to where you don't need Nurkic to be um, one playing 30 plus minutes every game, but also he was their second best player for most of last year. And what's good about what's good and bad about CJ McCollum is he's so much more important in the playoffs um, than he might be during the regular season. And that's like, that's like a give and take there. So for them, and you also brought this up too, they they do need to make a move and they kind of have the capacity to make one when you look at some of the smaller contracts they have. They should have the full non-taxpayers MLE this offseason, but they've always been reticent to like get rid of their own guys where they hold on to them for too long. It was, you know, I mentioned trading Anthony Simons last summer and it was considered like sacrilegious from um, Blazers fans. But like right now, if you go out and make a move, they, they probably need a wing more than anything else, but with Gary Trent Jr. there, maybe you don't as badly. And like you mentioned with Mello, not providing you anything on defense, even though I find it so funny that his defensive on-off splits this year just favored uh, the defense so much. But if you bring him back just to, to have him and Trent on the wings, maybe going after someone like an Aaron Gordon should Orlando try to 
sell, which I've been a proponent of them doing for quite some time. Now you have someone at power forward, you're relying on him to say, maybe hit more of his threes. But when you're catching passes from Dame and CJ and, and teams are collapsing on Mello and even getting passes from Nurkic, that should help. But he's also someone who then can um, play backup five for you, which makes Nurkic's job a lot easier. And I think it's that type of acquisition that they might need to be where you're talking about, where it's not, no, they don't need another all-star, but I don't know that it's also making moves on the margins. It feels like they need that, that in between where it's a significant move, but it's not, okay, we're going all in and mortgaging our future to get it done. So I'm going to choose a player instead of a team that I thought proved themselves in the bubble. I'm going to go with Jimmy Butler. Uh, before coming, before coming to Miami, he was, uh, he butted heads with a lot of teams, uh, three Chicago in Minnesota and Philly. And he came to Miami and averaged 20. It was a big part of the Miami's uh, journey into the NBA Finals. And I think that really shows uh, how important he was to this team and how, like, a top, maybe maybe he's a top 10 player in the NBA. I don't know. But he really showed his leadership, especially mentoring young guys like Tyler Hero and the other yeah. young guy. Yes. Robinson. Yeah. Robinson. To get them to this point, I think Miami's a really interesting team. Uh, they're coming up this off season because they do have a max slot, I believe. They're gonna have a max slot this year. It's just uh, Goran Dragic and Jake Crowder. You That's have to right. get That's rid right. of them. So it's like they're uh, they're they're interesting in that capacity. Where it's do you want the money or do you want to bring those players back? Right. I think they're an interesting team coming up this off season with all the pieces they have. But I think Jimmy Butler really proved that he is capable of leading a team after his quote unquote failures in other <laughs> on other teams. We, I guess, look, I'll loop myself into this because I was probably too hard on Jimmy Butler at some point, but I definitely feel like collectively it was underestimated how crappy the organizations were that he was coming from. Yeah. The Bulls are just absolutely terrible. Maybe that's changed now that they've made a regime shift, but like Minnesota botched the situation with him. He asked for a trade, like basically after they lost in the playoffs and Tom Thibodeau thought it was no big deal. And then you go to Philly where I don't know if it was, you know, Ben Simmons wanted him to leave or if they just didn't want to give Butler the fifth year or if he necessarily wanted out, but they clearly messed up that situation as well. And so I don't know that Jimmy Butler ever really deserved any of the criticism that he got. And I'm with you. He's, you know, building the top 10 player rankings is tough, but he's, I think he's always been on the fringes of that. And this might've come this performance in the bubble, bringing the heat to the finals might've just entrenched him into the top 10 more so than he was before. And now we're at this point where it's like, if he's not top 10, he's one of the 12 best players in the game. I mean, I definitely have never, in every single situation, I've been a huge Jimmy Butler fan. Like, I've always been, like, I think probably that 2015 playoff run with the Bulls is probably when I fell in love with Jimmy Butler, um, not only as a defensive um, unit, but as an offensive force as well. But it's kind of crazy we saw what Jimmy Butler could do in, in Miami in terms, like, of the different range of his style. Like, he could win games by by putting up eight points, and he could win games by putting up, 40 as we saw in the NBA finals that is not something I thought Jimmy Butler could do in terms of going toe-to-toe with LeBron James in the NBA finals um this heat team is a really really interesting team and I think Jimmy Butler was the glue guy to to push them to where they had to be I mean obviously Philly fans I know are probably fuming not having getting rid of Jimmy Butler and now having the crazy contract to Tobias Harris and Al Horford on their books for a first round exit, but for sure, I think Jimmy Butler definitely proved it. If anybody proved himself to be like an elite level talent in the NBA. Yeah, I'm totally with you. And there, look, he honestly seems not to care about how much he's scoring, which is hysterical because we say that about a lot of guys, 
on different occasions, but he actually doesn't seem like he cares. And that's a big part of what the Heat do. And that's the other thing too. This is the first time he's really gotten to choose where he wants to play in his career. And so if you were to pick a team that would be most likely to hold practices at three in the morning, coming off of a back-to-back, it would be the heat. And they just embody the Jimmy Butler culture like perfectly. And so it seems like that was a great marriage of um, personality and team because the, the heat and Jimmy Butler seem to like align with their mindsets where I think Butler's biggest issue has been that he holds his teammates to such an incredibly high standard. Um, we saw that definitely with Wiggins and Carl Anthony Towns. We saw it with Ben Simmons and Philly a little bit. And so the heat where they hold, you know, just the legendary like James Johnson being basically banned from the team because he was too much overweight. Um, even the Dion Waiter stuff like that. Dis- that was just a crazy situation, <laughs> like all around. But it's like a Jimmy Butler, like that, that team is like Jimmy Butler, like personified collectively is how I put it. And so I think that's what makes it work. And look, Logan had kind of mentioned this about them being interesting. I'm very curious to see what they do during this offseason because I don't think you can count on getting back to the finals next year just because the other teams in the East are like, it was never clear cut that Miami was going to get there. And so Miami, Boston, maybe Philly does something to get in there. Um, I will forever cape for the Toronto Raptors. I think they're still going to be threats. And now you're throwing the Brooklyn Nets into the fold. And so there will be this push for the Heat to make a move. But if Giannis doesn't sign his Supermax, you're going to have a lot of teams sort of operating in limbo because they want to preserve cap space for next summer. How do the Heat get better without putting long-term money on their books? Because you can sign Dragic and Crowder to inflated one-year deals, but like, how do you get even better? Are you just banking on Robinson and Hero to develop and, and even Bam Adebayo a little bit? Maybe it's a, it's a matter of that. But it wouldn't surprise me to see them do something – fairly seismic and take the stance of if we need money we will just clear it later because they basically did that with jimmy butler it was a sign and trade but they had to get rid of myers leonard too um they had that james johnson Dion waiters contract on the books this year and they were just able to get rid of them at the trade deadline and so i wouldn't put them in like the chris paul sweepstakes unless Giannis signs his supermax but when you're looking at guys like drew holiday uh, maybe if kyle lowry gets to, to the market maybe if um victor oladipo even in indiana They feel like a team that even though they have those free agency aspirations, it wouldn't shock me to see them go the like all in-ish route. And then if Giannis wants to come play for them, they'll figure out the rest later because I feel like that's what they've basically done under Pat Riley in general. I mean, before we get to more of the movement, I know for a fact Logan is a big proponent of the key Giannis in, in Milwaukee. He really does not think Giannis is leaving Milwaukee at all. Uh, yeah, I let him give his reasoning on that. Yeah, so I've been a I've been a very big advocate of Giannis staying Milwaukee. I feel like he has such a, a connection, a deep connection with that city and the owner and the Milwaukee Bucks. And I feel like seeing all these wild trade rumors to Golden State or Toronto, I don't I don't see it happening because I think that just the connection he has with that city. But I mean, it could happen depending on how well the Bucks do next year. If he decides to sign the Supermax, if he decides to wait a year, it all depends. But I'm a big proponent for him staying in Milwaukee. I feel like he should stay. I, I, just, I just feel you should stay there. I'm I'm with you in the sense that I'm, I guess I tend to be a bleeding heart would be the terminology for it. Like I want to see if he stays in a small market, I think that's big for the league. Maybe if it would be wild to see him in a golden state or in LA, but it's like similar to when I know he eventually forced his way out. But like when Paul George was traded to the thunder, but then decided to resign there, like that was big because it emboldened these smaller market teams to maybe make these bolder moves. And in Milwaukee's case, like if you're, if you're able to keep a superstar like Giannis, yes, he's, he's cut from a different mold and it seems like he 
really is married to that city, maybe in a way that other stars won't be. But I, I think it ends up being good for the league because then you always, while he's in his prime, there's that small market team that you can count on being there. Uh, with all that being said, if you're the Bucks, though, like part of it, and the Thunder showed they'll do this. Maybe it was a little too little too late. We can, you know, everyone will rehash the James Harden trade. But like they need to spend. Like the idea that Malcolm Brogdon was a, a luxury, I'm holding my hands up for nobody can see this, like the air quotes, was blasphemous. And now like they've kind of shot down. This could be, you know, posturing, but they've shot down the idea of acquiring Chris Paul because they don't want to pay the tax. I know the NBA was hit by the coronavirus pandemic. One, I'm shocked that it was, you know, before we recorded this, it came out that they only lost like 10% off the projections. I was, I was floored. I thought it was going to be like 20 to 30. If that they're probably more worried about next year when you have no fans probably at all. Still, you have Giannis Attentacumbo. And if you want to keep him after kind of botching what happened with Brogdon, this is the summer to go all in. And so I agree with Logan. I want him to stay there, but I think they also need to prove that they're worthy of him staying there. And whereas I think you maybe could look at other situations and think that um, maybe small markets didn't do enough to keep their, or or did enough to keep their stars and lost them anyway, in this situation specifically, if, if Giannis leaves one, he has to not sign the supermax this summer. And then you have to imagine something is going to happen throughout the season that would make him want to leave anyway. I think that more so then falls on, on the bucks in that situation. And so this off season, I think for them, you could argue more so than anyone else, just looking at the stakes with Giannis is they probably have more on the line than anyone else. And look, maybe I'm wrong. And Giannis is just going to sign the Supermax anyway, because that's the type of guy that, that he is. But I don't think they've done enough to prove that they necessarily deserve that kind of faith from him where he's going to tie the next, you know, four to five years of his career there. Yeah. Well, if speaking of this offseason and making moves, like there's been a lot, especially with the Victor Oladipo, um, rumors. There's been a lot of huge talks about what superstar is going to be traded. And we've seen that with coaching changes. We've seen that with a lot of different things. Who do you think is the big the NBA superstar that most likely will be traded this season, this offseason? I guess maybe I'd have to stretch the the interpretation of, of the word superstar. I, I think I would go with uh, Victor Oladipo to me is the most likely one just because of his injury. It doesn't seem like he's happy there despite what he says. And I don't know that the Pacers actually want to pay him. Uh, but I, I actually think it, would, it might be Drew Holiday just because there are going to be so many teams that go after him. He's, he's a fit just in so many places. And mm-hmm. you probably feel, even though he's older, more comfortable paying him long-term than Victor Oladipo at this point would be my guess. There's also a chance that you have him for at least two years because of the player option. I think it's 27 something million for 21, 22. And like, I would guess that he could get, you know, four years and a hundred and something million on the open market, but maybe he wants to roll the dice to 2022, or maybe you're just more likely to extend him. I would have been against new Orleans moving him because they're like, I just look at their roster and I'm like, they could really do some stuff now. Like I was talking about how they should maybe um, consolidate their assets into a, a bigger time acquisition. Like, Hey, let's get the Pelicans involved in the Oladipo or Bradley Beal sweepstakes. But after seeing them in the bubble, like they're clearly very far away. And I know Stan Van Gundy will elevate your defense at least a little bit. He proved that, I think, more than anything in Detroit. Like in Orlando, he had really good defensive talent around prime Dwight. But Detroit's like personnel was eh. And they were always above average defensively. I just don't know if they're if they're ready. And you look at the financial commitments to what Ingram's going to cost this summer. Lonzo Ball's extension eligible. Josh Hart's extension eligible. And then Holiday will be – he's extension eligible and hits free agency as well in 2021. If you can get, like, I don't know which team will give up the most for him, but if you can get, like, 
you know, two first round picks and a nice prospect for him. I think that's a move they consider making. And I don't think it will be, uh, whereas if it's Bradley Beal or if it's Victor Oladipo, I think they force it. Uh, if it's, if it's Drew Holiday, I don't know that it's necessarily forced as much as a mutual parting of the ways or the Pelicans are just looking at this and saying, like, we need to be in, in asset acquisition mode anyway. And so if you would have asked me this question probably even like a month ago, Drew Holiday would not have been the answer. And I still don't expect him to request a trade, but I think he's the the player that's most likely to begin the season on a, on a different team when we're looking at stars specifically. I mean, I know for a fact that if there's a team that's down for a stupid trade to even if it cost them money it's my new york knicks but um i love self-aware knick fans i just yeah, i know I like right? to say that i love self-aware knick fans um but for me i'm gonna go bold here like really bold and this might not happen this offseason but it really depends on what happens in during the season but i'm it, if you look at that philadelphia 76ers team and you look at the success they can have with or without one of these players it's i'm looking at either ben simmons or joel Embiid. I don't think Ben Sim. First off, if it, if I was if I was a GM, I mean, I'd hope I was a GM. Sorry for Joe Mori, but if I was a GM of this team, I'm Simmons is not helping this team. I feel he has literally never elevated his game since his rookie year. He is the same player he was when he came into the league. And if we're really being honest, Simmons and MB cannot play together. Um. They if they don't move those stars, then you have to either move that gigantic contract of Al Horford, or that this entire Sixers team is a mess. To be honest, if we're really looking at it, imagine if they would have kept Jimmy Butler. <laughs> Maybe they would be in the finals. Who knows? Um, for me, there's a lot of the, if you look at the Sixers team, there's so many different things that they need to improve on. For instance, I don't know why there was a narrative that Al Horford is a great um, interior defender. But he 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 what he did nothing. He did nothing in terms of interior defense. He did nothing offensively. I remember there was a point in the playoffs where he put up six points in a playoff game. You were getting paid how much money to put up six points? This is a guy who we thought was like 20, 2015 Al Horford, you know. But I'm thinking Simmons. If we're really looking at a gigantic trade that I think the Sixers would realistically make, I think it's Ben Simmons. And right now the Sixers are going through a culture change so to speak. So I think Ben Simmons, you could get more from him, get more for him than you could get from him, basically. That's so I guess the one thing I disagree with is I actually do think they could play together. The Sixers have kind of just that ship has sailed because they've left themselves so inflexible in a direction where they can't have them together because had you had signed Jimmy Butler and JJ Redick instead of Al Horford, like I, there's a clearer fit to Jimmy Butler and uh, not Jimmy Butler, Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons working, surround them with shooting and ball handling. The Sixers, and I, I don't say this lightly, they genuinely did the exact opposite of that. And so even with when people thought Al Horford was better than what he was, like there was still the morbid curiosity of the investment where it was like, okay, like maybe this could work, but I think you're paying close to $100 million for to make sure that you have a, a good center on the court when Joel Embiid isn't. What I do think, what you really hit on the head is that if it gets to a point where you want to consider moving one of them, I think it's, it's easier to probably build around Simmons than Embiid just because of Embiid's injury history. Okay. That being said, I've used this comparison with Demantis Sabonis and Miles Turner, where it's Sabonis might be the better player now, but Miles Turner is going to get you more on oh. the trade market because his, his skill set's more scalable. And with Simmons, it's similar. He's not the cleanest fit everywhere, but you can, as, as a primary playmaker, who's going to, you know, 
be traveling downhill with the ball more than Embiid, who, who would rather post up, or you'll see him in a lot of pick-and-pop situations. We've seen that he can put the ball on the floor, but that's not necessarily a strong suit. You're going to get more for Simmons. He's also under contract for longer. Um, his, his health bill isn't totally clear. Obviously, he had an injury just this season as well, um, but you can kind of trust that more. So if they were to move one of them, I think it ends up being Ben Simmons, uh, even though it might be the, the, the safer long-term play might be keeping him. I just don't know if we get there this year. And I would have said there's no way we get there this year, but because Daryl Morey's there, I think people are at once overselling and underselling his willingness to actually move one of them soon. Immediately, no. Like entering next season, you'll probably see him try and make other moves on the margins to see if it can work. But if things weren't going according to plan earlier on, and I'm talking, you know, 15, 20 games into the year, I don't think this is going to be a situation where he's like, no, I'm, I'm going to wait until the offseason. No, he's going to make the move now. Like we saw it with the Rockets this year. I, I firmly believe he did not want Russell Westbrook on the team instead of Chris Paul. Like the way he left Houston, I think that was clear, even with Mike D'Antoni there. But you saw it wasn't really working with Russ and Clint Capella having two non-shooters on the floor. You pivoted into that Robert Covington trade. Um, we've seen it just in other seasons from him too. And just the way that he wheels and deals – I think there's a chance that one of these two players could get traded midseason. I wouldn't peg it as especially likely, but where I would have said absolutely not when it was Elton Brand as the lead decision maker. Now with Maury as the president of basketball operations there, what you say I think becomes not relevant down the line, but perhaps sooner than anyone really expected. So for me, I'm stuck between two players, uh, Rudy Gobert and Gordon Hayward. Um, but I think, obviously I think Gordon Hayward's more likely to be moved, but Time out, Rudy Gobert. He's eligible for the Supermax. Obviously, he's a great defender, but he doesn't really bring that much in terms of offense to the Jazz. And uh, I think he's their fourth high or fourth best scorer last year behind Mitchell and Bogdanovich. So I feel like maybe they could sacrifice some of his defensive ability um, to upgrade for scoring. But he's his defensive ability is very good. So they're they're gonna take a hit there. I, it's it's hard to see them paying that much money for a guy so offensively limited. And then moving to Hayward, I feel like they could probably trade Hayward with a couple of their younger pieces for another star to get them over the top, especially in the East now with the uh, the Bucks and the Raptors and the Heat there. So I'm not sure who they would trade, what, what star they would trade for, but I feel like Hayward could be moved out of Boston in the future. Yeah, I mean, Rudy, sorry, no, uh, Rudy Gobert. It's funny that, the day that we're recording this podcast is when the Sixers hire a new president and the jazz gets sold. Like talk about um, timeliness. Rudy Gobert is the name that I've heard bounced around a lot though. I don't, you know, as Noah said, I don't know what you pay him long-term and feel comfortable doing. He's a generational defender. The memes with him getting played off the floor in the playoffs are, I find them funny, but like if we really settle into reality, like it wasn't that egregious, like the jazz adjusted and it worked at the same time. I think you could probably approximate what he does um, on both ends of the floor, let's say 70 to 75% of it while not spending super max money. And no, he doesn't have to sign for the super max, but do you, I'm honestly asking because I don't even know the answer to this, but are, are you paying Rudy Gobert four years and a hundred and some odd million dollars? Like even if it's four year, 100 flat, $25 million for a starting center, who's not Carl Anthony towns or power forward wannabe Anthony Davis. Like this is like, it's, like it's just not that league anymore. And so the jazz are a market where if you get a star of his caliber, like maybe you want to keep him. I don't know if the sale of the team helps or hurts the likelihood that he gets traded, but he's the one that I just have no feel for. Uh, my guess would be that he ends up signing an extension. That's just worth noticeably less 
than the actual supermax. I don't, I still don't know whether that'll be a great value for the jazz. And, and Hayward is a name that I think has come to light more recently. If he doesn't opt out, I think the Celtics would prefer to keep him just because he's overpaid at this point, but he comes off the books next year and their tax situation is going to be. Um, and again, I don't care. I'm not trying to say billionaires money. So I don't say this as being like pro team governor, the team is just going to want to keep their options open to see what their books look like after maxing out Tatum, having Jalen Brown, you have Kemba. So I think him coming off the books is something they view as like, well, that's some flexibility. That being said, if, if he does request a trade or you're looking at sign-in trades, I think the one that's kind of staring them in the face is Hayward, Picks, you know, maybe are there any players like Romeo Langford, how much value does he have? Grant Williams, you attach those to Gordon Hayward and then try and get Oladipo and Miles Turner from the Pacers. That seems to be like a deal that would be staring them in the face. So those are two interesting names. The Gobert one is just everyone will talk about him, but it seems like I'm sure the ultra ultra league insiders like know a little bit more, but those who are like tangentially related to the league or involved in the league, like no one has a good feel for what's going to happen with Rudy Gobert long-term in Utah. I mean, for me personally, I think the fact that Gordon Hayward, like I feel like Boston got really good and their players got really good at a good time because Gordon Hayward, that injury, if he was a little bit better, if that injury never happened, this Boston Celtics team looks a lot different Yeah. Um, today. But what the Celtics proved with this team is that they do not need Gordon Hayward at all. And I say that, I'm, not, I'm no disrespect to Gordon Hayward. I love Gordon Hayward. But the fact that Kemba produces, Jason Tatum has turned into a superstar. Jalen Brown is so a good. great player. Marcus Smart is a great player. I think for, for me, I'm like, let's let's try and get a big man this offseason, like a real big man, not Daniel Tice. As much as I love Daniel Tice, Daniel Tice is not the big man that can guard Joel Embiid, who completely killed the Celtics in the playoffs. Um, so Gordon Hayward, you could just let his contract um, contract just end if he opts in, which I think he will. Um, on Rudy Gobert's end, I... I've, I like Rudy Gobert, but I don't like him in reality because I just, I've always questioned his finishing abilities. He's not, he's a great interior defender, but he's not really a pick and roll type center, which if I feel like if you're not, if you're not hitting threes, you better be a great pick and roll, a pick and roll guy as a big man. So he doesn't really offer that. The Jazz, do they need Rudy Gobert as much as, as much as they do? Yes, they do. Cause he's one of the, best perennial defensive players we've ever seen but you're not I'm not paying him 25 million dollars a year that I, I I wouldn't do that that's that's would be a very 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 stupid decision um but moving on from stars moving um let's look, go into coaches we saw a, a plethora of coaching changes this offseason and there's bound to be more whether it's Tom Thibodeau getting ready to run R.J. Barrett's knees into the ground and turn <laughs> Robinson into the second coming of Joe Kim Noah, um, or whether it's Ty Lue thinking that he can handle the amount of personalities in Los Angeles, there's been a lot of coaching changes. Who do you think is the biggest – which coaching do you think will have the biggest impact on that team, on a team? I actually think it'll be Nate Bjorken in Indiana. Okay. They're going to be unrecognizable with the way that they play. Uh, just because Nate McMillan did a phenomenal job there, but he just, there was this unwillingness to try new stuff where one of the easy, I know, you know, me as a bystander, I'll say I oversimplify things sometimes. I mean, there are occasions where it's staring you in the face, like, Hey, Mike Budenholzer, you're allowed to play your stars more than 10 minutes a game, but 
with Nate McMillan, it was always, Hey, the Pacers can shoot more threes. And I think Bjorken has pointed to that. He's pointed to playing faster overall, where you're not just opportunistic in transition, but actively looking to, um, to get after it. So I think that he's going to have, you know, whether it's immediate, I think he'll have the, the biggest impact of anyone, at least where you're looking at the team and say, Hey, they're playing noticeably different. Ty Lue would be the, the a close second for me. And I think he had like, you could look at him in at least four of the coaching vacancies where it was new Orleans, Philly, Houston, and LA. And you could just imagine him like being a great fit there. He's, I know a lot of people, I'm not really a fan of this. And this feels like it tends to happen with um, black coaches where they get stereotyped to, you know, they're like great rah, rah guys. And like, they can inspire um, players. And I think he has proven that he can juggle superstar egos. Like one of the first things he did in Cleveland was call LeBron out for crappy defense. That's, I think that's a big part of what the Clippers need. His offense is fun. Like he was willing to go really small in Cleveland. Like there were big moments where he pulled Tristan Thompson out of the game. You're talking about a highly paid center who's made some big defensive stops for you in the past. And I think with the way the Clippers just played without any, I don't want to say any flow, but like there wasn't like it was, Hey, let's let Paul George, Kawhi Leonard and, you know, or Lou Williams just do stuff is what it felt like a lot of the time. I feel like we'll see more creative lineups when Zubats isn't on the floor. Um, I don't know how much better the ball movement will get because he knows what he has in his stars, but the lineups are going to get, I think, infinitely more entertaining. Um, we'll probably see a little bit more flow from them on offense. And I also think he's probably the coach, uh, maybe not the single biggest coach, but he's definitely someone who influences the rest of the roster. Now it looks like, okay, you have to bring Marcus Morris back. But my prediction would now be that Montrezl Harrell is not in Los Angeles next year. And that's so bizarre to say about the sixth man of the year, but and I'm, I'm willing to throw out what happened in the bubble for him specifically. He, was, he wasn't there with the team at the beginning, um, was dealing with the death of his grandma as well, wasn't even fully healthy, I believe. But when you look at what he does, like he's just not going to bring enough defensively, um, and Zubats is going to give you more there. And then if you want to downsize, he's not necessarily the guy you want at the five either. And so you throw – he had pick-and-roll chemistry with their primary ball handlers, and, and he is really good. But for what the Clippers already have in place, it seems like they might be better – um, just rolling with Jermichael Green, who has a player option. He should have played more in the playoffs for them at the five. And can you go out and get another ball handler type or just another, you know, combo big where Har- who stretches the floor where Harrell isn't necessarily that guy. And where when Doc Rivers was still there, I think you could talk yourself more into this team running it back in full. And they're not very flexible when you look at their trade assets and their cap sheet. But now I would almost guess, unless he can be, you know, kept for – what is an unbelievably low price, which I guess is possible. I'm going to be fairly surprised if, if Trez begins next season in LA. And I think the doc, uh, doc, the Ty Lue hire will be a part of that. I mean, for me, I'm going to go on the guy who just left. I think Doc Rivers on the Sixers, if you want to talk about an offense, it's going to look different. Hopefully, maybe we'll see Then it did where it's going to be Doc Rivers. I definitely, Doc Rivers is a weird coach for me because Half of the time, I'm like, yo, he's a really good coach. The other time, I'm like, but is he, though? Because basically, you look at that, um, that record, 0-7 in the playoffs when facing elimination. That's, that's not good at all. No. And 0-8 well, now if we, if we talk about the Denver series. Doc Rivers is a great guy for, I think, a team's culture, for any team's culture. What he did in Boston, obviously, carried a lot of weight. Um, what he did in, with the Clippers, he's – I don't think he's only missed the playoff once, I think, with the Clippers. I think you're right. But what he does in Philadelphia will definitely, I think, define him as a coach. Like, is is this guy really someone who can actually elevate your franchise? 
who he who left the guy who left Philly and Brett Brown. Brett Brown was should have been gone years. Ago. I think Brett Brown was probably one of the worst things to happen to Philadelphia besides um, besides Colangelo and besides Elton Brand. Brett Brown did not know how to coach. If Doc Rivers can understand what he has with his players now, if and that's why I say what happens with let's see what happens with Simmons this year. If Doc Rivers says, hey, Ben Simmons is not the guy that can run my offense. This Doc Rivers coach Chris Paul. If there's somebody, if there's a guy who can run an offense, it's Chris Paul. Doc Rivers knows how to run an off, how a playmaker can run an offense. And if it's not Ben Simmons, I don't think that I think that whatever Doc Rivers does, whatever he talks with um, Daryl Morian doing is going to define this team. It's going to be really a magnifying glass is going to be put on Doc Rivers this season because it really will show how impactful he is to that team or any team, honestly, in the NBA. Yeah, I have, I have a question for you on that, though, because there's I think he's been billed as like this strong culture guy. But when you look at what happened in L.A. twice with Chris Paul and Blake Griffin, um, the fractures there. And then this season, there was the whole Lou Williams, Trez, um, why am I blanking on the, the Patrick Beverly versus basically Paul George versus basically Kawhi Leonard. Like it seemed like he didn't have things um, properly balanced behind the scenes there. And so I would almost agree with you in the sense that this feels like the microscope's going to be on him because there's an element of that in Philly, which you alluded to with the Brett Brown stuff. I was a little bit higher on him than you, but I think the problem with him, and then this will date back to Sam Hankey is that they empowered these young guys like Simmons and Embiid um, too much early on. And so like, there's this level of ego there and entitlement. And that's why you're going to hear stuff like, well, maybe Simmons didn't want Jimmy Butler there, which is actually absolutely ludicrous because of how good Jimmy Butler is. So I could see Brett Brown, not getting his house in order there. Like I'm totally, I totally be on that train with you. I'm just curious now after watching like weird stuff happen in Los Angeles twice, is doc rivers, the the right guy to, to write that ship. And, and functionally he might be because Ben Simmons is basically like, uh, super tall Rajon Rondo, but like would be, might be the best out comparison for him. And so I, I could really see that working, but just, you know, when you're looking behind the scenes and what happened in LA, I'm just wondering if that at all concerns you about his fit for what it seems like as much as Philly needs help on the court, it also feels like they need a ton of help off of it. Well, if, even if we, if we, if we look at the doc, like the doc river situation, if you look at what happened in Los Angeles, there was a lot, I was reading a couple of stuff. There's a lot more stuff off the court that was going on that I feel like was never talked about. Um, is Doc Rivers in terms of the culture? In terms of the culture, you're correct there. Twice, I think Lob City should should have a championship. Lob City lost too many times in the playoffs because Doc Rivers just couldn't steer the ship right enough to actually push them over. Because at the end of the day, when you have the talent and when it seems to be working, you always have to look at the coaching staff. In Philadelphia, I think in terms of Doc Rivers building down. Build, um, build, take it, tearing down a building that's already there. He has to build this team up. There's, there's only, there's only one way this Philadelphia team can go, and that's up. So that's why I think here the, the Doc Rivers addition is going to be extremely important because there's, I don't think there's a way he could screw it up any more than it already is. Hey, if he does, Mike D'Antoni's still a free agent. I could see Daryl Morey uh, give Sean Rodgers the door next offseason. Mike D'Antoni, in which I thought Mike D'Antoni was a sure fit for the Sixers, but if Mike D'Antoni ends up coming to Philadelphia, this team will look drastically different. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. Um, My last thought on there would be, things in Houston must be pretty terrible for uh, Mike D'Antoni to leave without the guarantee of having a job lined up. That's a fact. 
<laughs> uh, I'm gonna t- I'm gonna pick a coach that I thought should have been the coach of the year in Billy Donovan. Um, I thought that he did a fantastic job last year, uh, leading the Thunder to uh the, the fifth seed after losing Paul George after losing Russell Westbrook in the off season, getting Chris Paul and a bunch of picks, and everyone was like, "Oh, the Thunder, they're gonna be." in the lottery. So I think that him going to the bulls is, is a really good move for the bulls because they have a lot of young players. You got Kobe white, Laurie Markinen, Wendell Carter, uh, Zach Levine. If he's there depends. Um, I think that him going there will bring Chicago a better culture than what they had before under Jim Bolin. And that this, I th- it would be interesting to see how he, incorporates these new pieces plus whoever they pick with the number four pick in the draft this year. Yeah. He's so interesting from a point that um, I probably shouldn't be paid to write about basketball saying this, but I have zero feel for what is happening in Chicago with him because where you just mentioned all that stuff, I, I, I just, Billy Donovan didn't seem like the obvious fit, like someone who would want to be part of a rebuild. It seems like that's why he left Oklahoma city. Um, so I, I am interested to see what he does with all those pieces. I think he's going to be a godsend specifically for Wendell Carter Jr., who yes. was yes. – uh, Zach Lowe has mentioned this many times, and I talked about this. This was going back leading into this season with Stefan No, who was at the Athletic at the time. Like, he just won't look at the hoop when he catches the ball. And even when you look at Larry Markkinen, like, the plays that are running for him where it's like, hey, let's throw it to Larry Markkinen in the post with four seconds left on the shot clock – uh, just going from anyone to Jim Boylan to basically anyone else, like there's your upgrade. But I do think Billy Donovan really does know how to coach big guys. And I'm very interested to see the work that he can do with the, the Zach Levine, Kobe white dynamic as well. And, and like in Oklahoma city, you didn't really have to run a ton of creative offenses because you had Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, then it was Russell Westbrook and Mello and Paul George, then it was Westbrook and Paul George. And then it was Chris Paul and Jay Gillis Alexander. I think you can do more creative stuff off the ball with, if only because they're younger with like Kobe white and even Zach Levine, who's probably better suited as like a number two, number three guy. And so if they can get someone uh, with a number four pick, or maybe they're willing to just make a trade where it makes life easier on Levine, but empowers Kobe white a little bit. I am very intrigued what they're going to do, but I still just don't, as I mentioned at the top, have a feel for who Billy Donovan is as a coach. And I don't necessarily blame Billy Donovan for that because I just rolled through like what a zillion different versions of the thunder in that they had in a half decade. So I just don't know what to expect from the Bulls for that, but I totally agree with you that that's just one of the more intriguing hires based not off only because we don't know much about Donovan as an NBA coach, but because of where we thought the Bulls were. Like they seemed like a team that might go the Steven Silas route like Houston did. Yeah. So, I, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I totally agree with you. I, I didn't, when I saw the all the head coaches who got jobs, Billy Donovan going to Chicago was. I was really confused because I knew that he left the Thunder. Well, it just it seemed like he left the Thunder because he didn't want to go through a rebuild, and the Bulls are technically, I think, still in a rebuild. So it was a confusing hire, but it'll be interesting to see what he does there. It also meant the Bulls ponied up for a head coach, which was shocking to me. I yeah. thought they were gonna, I thought they were gonna go the cheaper route. That was something else I expected. So wait, so if we're gonna talk about like the Bulls here. If I think Billy Donovan, as an not as an NBA coach, because in terms of coaching, I have I don't know where he stands. You're correct there. I think they got him because if you look at what happened with the Bulls in terms of their last two coaches and the, losing the locker room, it was it's been it's been tragic. I've I've never seen 
a team really rebel against their head coach like they did with Jim Boylan. First off, Jim Boylan was did not did not handle that any of the situations correctly. He compared himself to Greg Popovich on like day two or something. <laughs> it was the most ridiculous thing. Um, and then he, I don't know how you compare yourself to Greg Popovich on day two and then call your entire team a group of thugs on day three. Um, and then Fred Hoiberg lost the locker room too. Jimmy was a gigantic part of why Jimmy Butler is not on that team anymore. Um, Billy Donovan, for one, if he, if he doesn't bring anything, he, I think, will get that locker room. This is a guy who coached on both levels, both in college, successful in college, and I guess, I don't know if you're going to say successful in the NBA, but has a winning record in the NBA, which is more than you can say for any of their past head coaches. So getting to see what the dynamic is. I'm not really a big fan of Zach Levine for some reason. Ask me why, I can tell you, but I'm not a big fan of Zach Levine. Bad feeling from the guy. Exactly. Um, I love Laurie Markkinen. I want to see what he can turn out to be. Wendell Carter Jr. is someone I'm extremely high on. And if they can turn Kobe White into what we thought Kobe White was going to be going into into this season, then Billy Donovan has something there. This is a weird hire for them because you don't really see a veteran head coach. Well, I don't know if you would call him a veteran head coach. You wouldn't see a head coach who's used to playoff success just completely just go to the bottom of the barrel like this. But this is I like this hire for them because it means that they think that they have something going on in terms of culture. But the culture won't change, I guess, the Garpacks tandem just leaves, but we'll see. I mean, I think that's actually a great point. I didn't consider that enough with the locker room stuff. He's look, he's coached Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook. And the the thing I'll say about Russell Westbrook is he seems eminently coachable. Like you just never hear of like anything going on behind the scenes with him and his coaches. It's like, maybe he had easier superstar egos to deal with. Like you had Melo and Paul George there for a year together. Paul George was there for two years. You had Chris Paul there who was known to great on youngsters and clearly didn't want to be traded to Oklahoma city at first. So I, I think your, your point about the locker room is just absolutely spot on. So I, I think it's definitely a good hire from, from that perspective. Yeah. But moving on from the NBA offseason, let's talk about the NBA season. So Danny Green said some type of cryptic, cryptic stuff about that certain stars would not want to play if um, the season starts on December 22nd. Obviously, you can see why the league is trying to get it around that Christmas day. That, that, that would just be great for their ratings, especially for coming from an NBA playoffs that had one of the lowest ratings that we've seen in the last couple of years, mostly because every single major sport was playing at, at that time. But anyway, so how valid do you think Danny Green's claims that certain stars like LeBron or whatnot would not, would skip games if the season started that early? I think it's fairly valid. I mean, LeBron specifically just, you know, LeBron's going to be 36 soon. It kind of snuck up on us because we're used to saying once the season ends, there's like another six months until his birthday, but there was less than two basically this time. So I could see him like sitting out the first month, What I think we would probably more so see maybe there's an instance or two, like if LeBron decides he's not going to come back right away, I think we're just going to see like extreme load management in certain cases where it's like, when you have to deal with more back to backs, Um, more four games and five nights. Will there be like back to back to backs? Like there were in that lockout campaign. I, I, I think the NBA would be smarter than doing that, particularly when they don't have to battle with, you know, arena openings for concerts during this time. So, but like maybe LeBron or let's use Kawhi as an example, like maybe they just don't play back to backs. And like, when you have so many back to backs that could amount to like 
15 games at minimum. And then you might just factor in rest when there's four games in, in five nights. So we might see more of that. I would be, you know, not just because so few players have the status that LeBron did. And the other thing that's worth pointing out is like, not all of these teams played as late as Miami and LA. It's still a quick turnaround no matter what, but you're going to have, you know, 10 teams or so from the league, like didn't get a chance to go to the bubble. So almost a third of the league's probably itching to play. And then you have teams that left earlier teams that were bounced in the first round. Um, even when you look at some of the teams that made it to the later rounds, like, you know, I don't think the Celtics are going to have any pushback from, from their stars. Um, James Harden has been a big regular season guy. So him playing in the second round, I don't know that that matters as much throughout the season. I could see there just being a level of, you know, stars were used to seeing play as many games as possible, like a James Harden, maybe they're not playing as often, but for them not to be there at the start date, particularly if you're going to be on the Christmas day slate or on the opening night slate, I would be fairly surprised if there's more than one and the one being LeBron James that just decides like, you know what, I'm going to play maybe Christmas, but take the first month off or something. Yeah. I mean, I was kind of surprised because Michelle, Michelle Roberts was talking a lot of different things about the NBA season. She was saying that theoretically she wants a bubble, which I, if they, if we, Probably not going to be fans because of the COVID pandemic. But if you want fans, the bubble can't really happen. Um, and if we're seeing this in a lot of other sports, that they've tried to slowly integrate fans more. The World Series had fans, obviously. Um, NFL has been slowly integrating fans. Um, doesn't matter if they're fans or not. I don't think New York's going to have anybody. But um, what do you, in terms of fans and revenue, do you think that this start date means that the NBA thinks that there's eventually a situation where fans are allowed to come in or not? My guess would be that because it's not, it felt like Martin Luther King day was originally the middle ground where it was like, you would know whether you could have more fans in more markets later on in the season. The fact that they're kind of pushing this to start earlier one, I think what you already touched upon is like having Christmas day is kind of huge. And then ending the season earlier and not having the playoffs later in the summer, when even amid the pandemic, people are outside, maybe not as likely to watch live TV, but just where you're not, you know, there's not as many other, other options, like keeping that schedule is probably really important to them. But I think just starting earlier in general uh, leads me to believe that they're looking at this situation and saying, you know, three, four, five months from now, like it's not going to be a lot different. Like we're not going to have most arenas at even half capacity. I'm, you know, I'm sure there'll be markets that will be allowing fans by that point, but how many, like, are we going to be looking at more than 20% capacity anywhere? And I'm sure there are going to be markets, you know, particularly in New York, California, I would guess, where they're just not going to allow those types of gatherings just yet. And so their main concern then becomes we need to squeeze in as many games as possible, which is going to be harder to do if you start in December or February. And there are people that floated the March idea, which was just absolutely ridiculous to me, but then by starting later. And then also this gives you the best chance of starting on time in 2021, 2022, when you might be able to achieve something that resembles normalcy compared to what we've been dealing with the past season and a half. And so starting before Christmas gives you a a better track to doing that. And I, all that to me just adds up to maybe they're willing to risk that if you knew you could have fans in the stands for even the last half of the season. But I would guess they're looking at the trajectory of the pandemic, or at least how individual states are handling it and saying, you know what, we're probably going to have to deal with the fact that most markets won't allow fans. And that if we ever get to a point where there's close to 30 to 50% capacity in an arena, that it's an anomaly throughout this season. And I wouldn't be surprised then to see the bubble come back for the playoffs specifically. I know, like you said, Roberts had mentioned it 
maybe as part of a longer term thing or having regional bubbles. Uh, I cannot stress enough how much the players themselves and she's the head of the players union would actually be against that just to be sequestered that long is I understand people who don't want to empathize with them because they make so much money, but like to, to not to be away from your family, your friends, like any sense of a normal life. I can't see that necessarily happening during the regular season too much, but as the postseason specifically, my guess would be that the 2021 postseason happens in some sort of a bubble. Yeah. And then obviously the postseason is going to be extremely close to the Olympics and their um, proposed start date. So I, I just, I just don't know how that's going to work, but if, since we're already in the postseason, I'm going to now attack you on your article about who has a shot at the, at the playoffs. But first you get a little bit of praise. You were really high on a team that me and Logan have been extremely high on this entire season, even going into the bubble in the Dallas Mavericks. What's your take on the Mavericks and why do you think that they're so like well-equipped to get to that um, third finals round um, in 2021? For me, it was leading into this season, I was not skeptical of Luka Doncic, but my question was how much better can he actually get? Like what does the, the next best version of Luka Doncic looks like? And it was apparently a top five player. And so when you have that in place, like you're almost guaranteed for in contention alone. And so now they're at this point where they feel like because they're fairly deep and Rick Carlisle always seems to cobble together like these great bench heavy units, regardless of who's a member of them. But because they're fairly deep and you have Chris Stops, and if you can get a fully healthy season from him, I think you can talk yourself into them putting up a fight against anyone. And it certainly helps. You know, we saw them under less than ideal circumstances go punch for punch with the Clippers. You didn't have KP for most of that series. And that was a big deal. They're not necessarily financially flexible this summer unless Tim Hardaway Jr. opts out, but they do have some pieces they can include in a trade. Like maybe they're the team that goes after Victor Oladipo. And the way I framed it is they feel like half a player away from being legitimate contenders. And because of Luka Doncic has already climbed so far up that ladder, that half player could be a full season's worth of Kristaps or more likely I would say they go out and they make some sort of a, a trade. And so because they're that close I don't know that you could just say, hey, they'll be right there because the West is just still incredibly brutal. And I have to reiterate the fact like the Warriors are in some form coming back. They're not going to be the same old dynasty, but they're not going to be the worst team in the Western Conference this year. But if you get if you can go on the trade and get even it doesn't have to be an Oladipo like it just it has to be like a, a t- I'll say a top 75 guy. If you had a top 75 player, this Dallas roster, they could really have a chance to me to beat over the course of a seven game series anyone i'm not saying they'd be favored but i don't think that aside from maybe the lakers at that point i don't know that you could look at a team and say they're just going to roll right through dallas i mean you make that point about the warriors um logan actually has a huge bold statement regarding a team that you put under your obvious contenders logan ah yes uh the lakers aside from lebron and ad because obviously they're fantastic top five players both of them i don't I don't see after them. I don't see much from this team with who they're. I don't know who they're bringing back in terms of all the veteran players and all that. So obviously, I'm not going to take anything anything away from LeBron and AD, but the rest of their roster is kind of suspect. So I don't. I'm not that confident in them making the finals again. I, I they're going to make the playoffs. It's just the rest of their roster has question marks for me. I don't think you don't need to hedge like their roster is incredibly suspect after LeBron 
NAD. What I think helps is uh, two things is that they have at least NBA caliber players on the depth chart. And so if you assume they're going to bring, like, I don't think KCP is going to leave. He probably opts out, but I think he comes back. They don't have that reliable third guy, but they have many guys who can stand up and be that third guy on any given night. What I think matters more to me is that LeBron's teams are seldom this flexible where it's like, they're going to have the full non-taxpayer mid-level exception in probably I should say, because the cap projections haven't been finalized in a season where I'm going to estimate 25 to 26 teams don't have any more money than that to spend. And so if you, let's just say the money is equal in free agency from 25 to 26 teams, and you're the team that's in LA is coming off the championship and has LeBron. I just think that opens up a ton of scenarios. We're not even necessarily thinking about right now. They are not going to be the team that goes out and trades for drew holiday. Uh, People have mentioned Chris Paul. That's just incredibly tough to work. But if you look at free agents, like, they could sign and trade for Danilo Gallinari is one guy that I point out. Even if Fred Van Fleet is a player that I think could end up not falling within their price range, but as someone they're willing to pay within a sign and trade. And so because those options are going to open up, I'm inclined to give them the, the benefit of the doubt. And I'll fully admit when LeBron signed with LA, I predicted that he was done making the NBA finals. I didn't think he'd make another one, even if the Lakers traded for Anthony Davis. But I think I'm past the point of, doubting LeBron in any capacity. I need to see some sort of a slippage from him before I believe it's going to happen. Um, and then the, another big thing finally would be Anthony Davis really showed that he received a ton of flack and not necessarily undeservedly so about his ability to be the number one guy on a title contender because of what happened in new Orleans, but he is like the next best thing. If he's not that where he can be the best player on a team that already has it's number one or that LeBron type player where the playmaking and the from scratch, the from scratch creation, sorry, I can't talk. doesn't fall to him as much. And with the way that he was hitting his jumper in the playoffs or how he scored so much within the flow of the offense during the regular season, just combined with his defense and the way that he feels like elevated LeBron's effort level on defense. I would expect this team to be right there again next season. I, I think you can more than argue that, they have a fragile title window just because of how old LeBron is. And then you mentioned the supporting cast. It's there's a lot of guys who are entering free agency. Uh, If they overpay some that doesn't bode well for them down the line. Or if you try to straddle flexibility for 2021, like you're still keeping yourself in that precarious position. I just, it'd be tough for me to envision them not finishing as like one of the two, maybe three best teams in the West next season. I I definitely agree with you with um, the signing free agents. I don't, I've seen a lot of trade rumors or trade packages for stars to the to LA, and I don't see it happening just based on the pieces that they have. But definitely free agency, there it's it's Los Angeles, it's LeBron, so of course they're gonna attract a lot of players. You mentioned the you have the Warriors as uh, uh, championship contenders, I guess. Um, I feel like everyone forgets about the Warriors so quickly after they missed the playoffs for one year. And I totally agree with you uh, with them bouncing back. Steph Curry is still Steph Curry. Clay, we don't know how he's going to look coming off his eight torn ACL, but I would expect he's going to be still a good player. They have the number two pick that they could trade for someone or keep and draft a young star. And Wiggins is awful serviceable is serviceable i i'm not sure what to say about wiggins but i feel like the warriors are still going to be up there with the rest of the 
West contenders. So, I mean, but that's where we, that's where the point we're always saying too, like the West has so many good teams that you don't know how that top three is going to look. Denver has made, we thought made a leap in the, during the regular season. And then they made it, made an, another even larger leap um, that now Jamal Murray is, I would call him a superstar. Now, Nikola Jokic proves he's still great. But going back to your point about trades, you know how Lakers fans are. They think they can trade for anybody and everybody. So whether it be Giannis, whether it be Oladipo, they don't have the pieces. Um, I'm definitely not trading Danny Green in a second rounder for Victor Oladipo. But, you know, in the in the West, the it's going to be very different. And LeBron, again, I'm a huge LeBron doubter. I do not like LeBron as much. That's because, you know, when you grow up a Knicks fan, you, you start to hate everything that's successful. So... I definitely don't like LeBron, but I definitely can respect it. You can doubt him, but he can only get better. But, um, one of his best passing seasons, Anthony Davis proved, to me, he was the finals MVP outside of LeBron's huge performances. He's been literally unstoppable in all but one game in the NBA playoffs. If you don't count that weird 18-point performance, performance against um, Miami. But he's literally been unstoppable. You can say that, oh, has there really been a, a big man to test them? Doesn't matter. He's been great. He's been efficient from the field. He's been great on pick and roll. He's been great on face up. He's been dominant inside and he's been an even better defender. So he's a great, um, almost number one. You could call him a 1.5 actually type guy. He, if he could, LeBron is 1A, he's 1B definitely for the um, Lakers. But you bring up Fred Van Fleet, one of the greatest um, Wichita State players ever. You know, my love for Wichita State. I think when you look at Fred Van Fleet, it brings me to talk about for on one of your one of your teams that you mentioned, the Toronto Raptors in the East. Toronto is a team that I picked to win it again. I actually surprisingly picked did that stupidly. This team is gonna either look really different next season or somehow look somewhat similar. Um, some something I said that the Raptors had a lot of going into the playoffs was depth. They had precarious amounts of depth. Serge Ibaka is a free agent. Marcus Gasol is a free agent. Fred Van Vliet is going to be a free agent, I believe. Maybe restricted, I'm not sure. Your Knicks are going to max him out, probably. He's definitely going to be a free agent. I don't know <laughs> if that's a good idea. I like Fred Van Vliet, but do I like him enough to win meaningless games for us? But <laughs> either way, Pascal Siakam, we expected him to take a leap. He didn't Really, I don't know why everyone was expecting him to turn into a Giannis-type player, maybe because they have, like, the sim- similar play styles and whatnot, you know, just drive and spin and attack. But the Raptors are a very interesting team this season. Nick Nurse is a great coach. We already know that. But what can they add this offseason or retain this offseason in which they're not losing a lot? If anything, I'm doing my best to keep Fred Van Vliet. Fred Van Vliet is probably what he's now emerged as is – now he's a, a great ball distributor and a great playmaker for this team. He's career highs in assists, career highs in um, points, career highs in um, effective field goal percentage. He's been really good this season. In the bubble, he took a little step, but the entire team just didn't really produce. I, I want to see what they do before I call them a contender, but I think if um, Masai Ujuri is probably one of the best um, best orchestrators of a team, I think he could be, I think the Raptors could be serious contenders next year and still compete for, um, for an NBA title still, but that's all on hope. It's really, it's really hope. I don't know what's going to happen with this team. 
Yeah, I had them coming out of the East this year. I didn't have them winning, but I had them coming out of the East again this year. So I was right there with you with the optimism. They're they're in a precarious situation as you kind of lined uh, mapped out. I think probably the best case scenario for them is that you're able to keep um, Van Fleet, you know, hopefully at like fair weather value f- from a team's perspective. Uh, there's sort of this speaking with people in Toronto, there's like this running joke where they think Fred Van Fleet is just going to chase the bag because he always has these random sponsorships in Canada. So if the Knicks throw, you know, 23 million a year at him, I, I, I think the belief is that he'll accept it. Um, but if you can keep him like between 17 and 20 million, that's probably an overpay from what you're looking at, but it still gives you the ability to have cap space in 2021 if you don't spend big money elsewhere. And so their best case scenario is probably, bringing Van Fleet back, and then can you get Ibaka to come back on an inflated one-year deal? And then can you do the same? You would do it if, if if Gasol wants to come back, but if he maybe wants to play somewhere else, there's been rumors that he's going to go play overseas now because he won his title already. I don't think he's as mission critical um, just because Serge Ibaka was fantastic for them this season. And so it's more like a maintenance thing with them where if you bring back the same – let's say the same roster minus Gasol, uh, you probably have a good chance to come out of the East – a lot of it would come down to Pascal Siakam kind of taking that next step. And I feel like he's made huge increases in every season, but as we saw against the Celtics towards the tail end of that series, he's got to have better decision-making and handles in traffic. And it helps that he's sort of this viable shooter, but you probably need him to be a little bit more comfortable firing up off the dribble as well. Even though he was hitting some of those shots in the regular season, he's dribbling into wide open pull-up threes. Those aren't going to be as readily available um, in the postseason, or if they are like, you just need to be more consistent with them. So that's always going to be, uh, that's, that's going to be so integral, just his continued development into the type of best player on a contender status where I don't think that he's there just yet, but we've seen enough to know that he might get there. And even then they probably still need to do something else where it's like, who are they getting? Like they need someone else who can put pressure on defenses in the half court. I don't know who that player is because they're not like they have trade assets, but you're not going to trade OG unless you're getting a certified star at this point. I, I'm very big on OG. Please keep him in Toronto. OG is probably one he's, of my favorite players. He's so good. And it's like, I don't know who would be accessible to them because like, they don't have all these, like because so many contracts are coming off the books, like they don't have great salary matching fodder. Kyle Lowry makes a ton of salary, but I don't know that you trade him and get better. I just don't think that happens. You can use Norman Powell and Terrence Davis and then picks, but like, what does that package get you? So they're fascinating from the perspective of even if they stay together, one, that's a question in itself. And two, what does that even mean? Like, what else are they able to do? Uh, Can they go out and sign like a, even a Wesley Matthews type player might be huge for them. I, I honestly don't know, but they're, I would still call them. I think they've earned the benefit of the doubt because of what Ujiri has been able to accomplish but you're right that they could look drastically different next season. And even if they don't, they have to have, like I would say on a scale of one to 10, a move that registers as like a five or a six on the scale in them as well. Um, a team that I am really intrigued by is the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, now they have Steve Nash as their head coach. Um, you have Kevin Durant coming off an Achilles injury. Who knows what kind of player he's going to be. Kyrie is coming back. I'm not the biggest fan of Kyrie. I think he's a, bad locker room guy i'm not going to deny he has he's very skillful but i just don't think he's good for a locker room um karis lavert during the bubble showed that he can be a, a bona fide star um and jared allen does he stay here with deandre jordan starting in the center role i so i'm really intrigued by what this 
this Nets team is going to do this upcoming season. Yeah, they're look, uh, the Kyrie stuff is those are valid concerns. I would still say his talent probably outweighs the, you know, emotional toll that he could extract from your team at the same time. There's just no, like you look at this roster, like where are your guarantees coming from? Um, Kyrie Irving's injury prone and just said that the Nets don't have a head coach. It's like this collaborative effort. And Steve Nash kind of reiterated the same thing, which, you know, it's, it's always collaborative, but it's just, it's weird to say that. Like, that's just, I'm not even, I don't want to use it as like a measure of Kyrie's character, but it's bizarre to say that. Um, Durant, the level of player that he is, it's unprecedented when looking at the injury that he just suffered. I think you look at someone like Wesley Matthews or Rudy Gay, and you've seen that they've been able to come back at least strong from similar injuries. Kevin Durant was a top three player though, when he went down and, and there's just no precedent for what that player looks like when he comes back. That being said, even if Kevin Durant is just uh, catching and shooting, he's probably still a top 10 guy because he can shoot over the top of absolutely anyone. And he's probably one of the, what the five, 10 best shooters to ever play the game. There's still just that level of mystery because it's also year one coming back from injury. Like even the best success stories, I feel like they need like a year to get their bearings about. And so are you punting on another year of his prime? And then you mentioned Jared Allen. Uh, I have no idea. Well, I think we have an idea because Kyrie and Katie like DeAndre Jordan and he seems to be a good locker room guy. Jared Allen is better than DeAndre Jordan. I don't think Jared Allen's going to finish the year in Brooklyn though. And then Karis LeVert and Spencer Dinwiddie, two really good players, fringe all-stars in the East for sure, but their strong suits are not playing off the ball. And I think you could say the same about Kyrie Irving. They're all capable of it, but when three of your four best players um, and all four of your best players are most comfortable creating for themselves, there is a bit of overlap there. At the same time, uh, how many games would you say we can count on Kyrie and Kevin Durant to play together? If I set the over-under at, if we're going to have a 72-game season, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant playing in 35 of the same the same games together. Are you taking the over or the under on that? I'm taking the under on that for sure. Definitely the under. And then, <laughs> that, injury, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Kyrie still has injury concerns as well. Like, are Kyrie's knees okay? Like, in, in all reality, because he was injured this season, injured the previous season. Like, so that is – you also have those concerns as well. And that would be the argument to why you keep Karis LeVert and Spencer Dinwiddie because you're going to need Knights to lift up the offense because you have one or both of Kyrie and, and KD out. Um, but then kind of the flip side of that is, is if you can go out and get a star, why wouldn't you do that? Because I was probably a bigger proponent of depth, I would say, a year or two ago. But kind of seeing how important star power has really become, even when you're looking at one-two punches as opposed to big threes – I think you can make a case that in this situation, it's safer to have an actual star lifting up a team with two injury risks like Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, as opposed to two fringe stars. Like who is that? You know, if it's Bradley Beal, I would say, yes, you do it. But then what happens to your defense? Like Spencer Dinwiddie and Karis LeVert aren't great defenders, but when you look at them play and you can even look at their metrics, like they can be net even or slightly positive for their positions. You're not going to get that from Bradley Beal in all likelihood. Drew Holiday seems like an obvious fit, but do you want to pay Drew Holiday? We talked about this already, you know, nine figures into his, his thirties. They have so many questions there that they have to sort of tackle this. What makes more sense depth or, or star power. And then I'm, I don't know what their defense is going to look like next year, because as of right now, their best wing defender is probably Kevin Durant. And that's a huge problem uh, coming off of an Achilles injury. Torian Prince has never been that guy. And I say that as someone who really liked him in Atlanta, um, but his it's an adventure every time he puts the ball on the floor. And I don't mean that as a compliment. And uh, he just hasn't held up defensively against these bigger wings. 
who is your guy to go out and defend those types? And you don't have the money to sign him unless someone like a Paul Millsap is willing to come for the mini MLE. I think, um, you know, Mo Harkless, is he, is he going to sign for the mini MLE? He's someone they could use, but if you're looking at a situation and saying 35 year old Paul Millsap is your best um, defensive lifeline or Mo Harkless is your best defender. Like that's probably an issue in my book. You still have Jared Allen who could technically be your best defender, but I don't think that he's going to be more than Deandre's backup. And at best you're probably splitting minutes between him and DJ. So I, this is probably, unless you guys, like maybe you guys disagree. I would say this is the most combustible situation in the NBA right now. Like Philly could be up there. Houston's definitely up there, but I feel like just Brooklyn, there are so many, like every time I talk about Brooklyn, I feel like the conversation lasts an hour because there are just so many layers to their situation. I could definitely agree with that. <laughs> that's, I, that's, I, I don't want them personally to succeed, but wow. like, it's, uh, well, why would I? Of course. Why would of course. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, but obviously there's a lot of questions going into the, um, this season, especially with obviously they have a first, a first year head coach in Steve Nash, which was probably the most surprising. I've, I did not see that coming at all. Katie likes him, I guess. So, and when you see when a lot of the um, big personnel changes are based off of players, that usually never goes the right way. So we'll see what happens with that. Raptors, we don't know. Obviously, other teams, we don't know with personal challenges and moves. And it's, again, this NBA season is still up in the air. We do not know what's going to happen with this NBA season, let alone with, their, with the roster. So we'll see what happens. But thank you, Dan, for coming on. Do do you have anything you want to plug? No, I got nothing. You could just search my name if you need to follow any of my work. (laughs) Please, please, please read this man's work and listen to his podcast. Very funny stuff. It's extremely good. Um, But thank you so much, Dan, for coming on um, to the Six Sports Podcast and talking basketball with us. No problem, Noah and Logan. Thank you guys for having me. I'm happy to come back anytime. This has been the Six Sports Podcast. Where our opinions are the only ones that matter. It's Logan. It's Noah. Thank you. Have a great day. It's the Six Sports Podcast with Noah and Logan.